0: thanks so much for being here with me today Scott I'm, I'm really excited to introduce you um, to my guests uh, this is the say it in the room podcast where you know we talk about all aspects of leadership and business philanthropy um, uh, and particularly in the world of startups and uh, and investing um, really excited to have you here today um, our our podcast is hosted by no mud no magic which is my platform that's all about um creating access opportunity for diverse founders um super excited to to have you join us today Um uh, be great for maybe the audience to hear a little bit about yourself and your background. yeah, how much detail uh should I go into? yeah, I mean give the full story i mean you the mic is yours. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll try
1: to keep it quick um so my background's a little bit different even for what I would call a different world which is v c I actually had my own companies initially, one in college, one out of college, neither was all that successful really for the grand scheme of things, but ended up learning quite a bit from both of them and After that situation, I actually went to the intelligence committee I had an intern there in college, got my full clearance, didn't actually do anything, but I had the clearance, I had access to everything, and went in there as a twenty three year old kid not knowing what I would be doing, and showed up and looked around and I was working for one of the most senior people in one of these agencies and basically was the uh the jackass kid running around solving problems for a couple of years, did sort of the intelligence side of things for a while and then got involved in the operational side of the house for a bunch of years, doing basically everything you could ever think of. Uh thought that experience would be completely useless for a while and actually panicked a bunch of times wondering what I was doing because couldn't really talk about what I was doing, couldn't talk about any accomplishments, couldn't talk about any skills I'd picked up, really couldn't talk about anything at all. And ended up spending years into this kind of isolated ecosystem which no one had access to. And met someone named Jim Hunt, who I know you're aware of. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I probably uh stumbled into one of the best opportunities of my life learning from Jim for a number of years and seeing how he invested, how he picked founders, how he got access to deals, how he helps the founders after he invested. And after a number of years with him just started angel investing, the first one alongside him and then some of the other ones with with or without him. Ended up going to a company called Circo, which Nobody has heard of outside of the D.C. area. It's a gigantic global company. It does literally everything you could ever think of and was running M&A with a, a friend of mine there for a little while who actually encouraged me to raise a venture fund and uh, was also another really, really key person in my career who actually invested in Fund 1 and also was invested in Fund 2 for early light. I uh, did that for a number of years, went to AARP for a little while, did all sorts of stuff there, continued to angel invest. Then got a call from Greg Cangelosi, who I also know you know, yeah, uh, at Baltimore Angels. He was another really key person in my career who said, Take over Baltimore Angels, help me run the group and did that for about six months, then got approached by uh another person who I know you know as well, Mary Miller, who's another key person <laughs> in my career, mm-hmm. who ended up being the first check in early life fund one and was pivotal in getting that going, and encouraged me to do that. But that's that's sort of how everything got to where it is today. I can go into a lot more detail on anything maybe outside no, intelligence stuff
0: then i can't. <laughs> no, no, of course. No, I, I get that. That's that's amazing. What a great career you've had. Um, it just shows that there's a lot of different pathways into into tech investing. Um, you know, people don't always see them. You don't, you don't always have to be a founder first. Um, you, you, what's, one of the interesting points that you mentioned that i'd love to pick up on is um is is uh your corp dev role. You had a corp dev role at um at Circo. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear like, what did you see while you were there that, like, might have informed, you know, your your investing style, your understanding of the market, the kinds of things you wanted to invest in, and how to get them to, you know, successful outcomes?
1: So, I got, there's a combination of factors there. So, Circo is, it's a global company. It's actually publicly traded in the UK. Uh, they've got a couple of different global subsidiaries. The U.S. and Canada one was one of the largest, maybe the largest now. And that US-Canada subsidiary had about $1.2 billion in sales when I joined in 2015. And they did, I mean, they literally did everything you could ever think of. They had every client you could ever think of, every type of work you could ever think of. And my job was to go in there with with Lynn, who was my colleague and also another, as I mentioned, really key person in my career. We ran corporate strategy and corporate development for Circo in the US and Canada and had this $1.2 billion book of business, so to speak, and tried to figure out like where is the company focused? Where do they spend money? Should they buy anyone? Should they divest part of the company? What is that? What are these things actually worth? How is this going to work? How is the company internally structured? so things be shifted or changed or adjusted? So my role is—if <laughs> it's different every day. I mean, it could be focused on something on the naval side of things. It could be focused on a USP, USPTO business, a CMS business, a state business, a commercial business, a hospital business, a bike share business, a rail business, a roadway business a Canada business of which they had two big businesses in Canada and they didn't know what to do with. It. And they still, to some extent probably don't know what to do with that. And it was just yeah. going out and trying to make sense of like, how do we get the most value of this? Is this something that should be in the company? Should it not be in the company? Should we go buy a capability we don't have? Should we extend a capability we don't have? Is it organic, inorganic all sorts of different things. And it was literally the two of us running corporate strategy and corporate development for this giant company. So it was, it was a good learning experience in a lot of ways because we were just doing Everything across every sector you can ever think of, that changed cool. every single day.
0: Yeah, no, there's something about exposure that, that just gives you mastery of, you know, sort of um, early investing. Because uh, you're looking for lots of signals, you know, that tell you a thing is going to be successful or not. So that makes a lot of sense that, you, you know, you see a lot of things, you're working on a lot of different kinds of things that just give you exposure um, and, and quite frankly, proficiency, um, at, at some of the, some of the products that you've invested in. Um, yeah. So th- th- what is, what does someone like you, what does your morning routine look like? What's a, what's an average day for, um, for you as a VC? <laughs> uh, there is no average day. And I mean, morning for me
1: is different than other people. I tend to work better really late at night, which is something that's going to have to change when we have kids, my wife and I, which at some point will probably hopefully happen. Uh, I mean, as of right now, I'm usually working until about two or two thirty in the morning. Um, <laughs> you too. Yeah. It's, I mean, I like, I love the work, which doesn't It, hurt, it hurts and it helps. It hurts and that it keeps me up really late at night and it doesn't feel like work. And then, you know, there are times in the past I've turned around and I'm like, Oh, the sun is coming up It's 6am. I need to actually go to sleep tonight. Um, but you know, sort of day in the life. It's, there are a lot of emails, a lot of calls, a lot of texts, a lot of, I would say a lot of meetings. I actually have pulled way back on meetings. Um. But between the two funds, I have something like 130 unique investors. I've got I have something like 30 or 35 portfolio companies and different founders in those companies, uh, and all sorts of different moving parts. About 300 funds I work with, so there's hundreds and hundreds of people every day that I'm
0: emailing, texting, calling, and it changes every single hour, every single day. Wow! No, that's 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 amazing. That's a that's a lot of connectivity, my friend. <laughs> it's good and it's bad. Well, let's let's talk about that. Like, you, so if you've got how many thirty
1: portfolio companies? uh There's about twenty one active companies in fund one. I've got well one duplicate in fund two, one new one in fund two, and then I've got something like eight or ten angel investments, which aren't in the fund, but actually can be pretty useful because I've worked with the founders for a number of years and they're really really connected in the ecosystems that they're in. So in terms of deal mm-hmm. flow diligence, they're really helpful for a lot of things. I hopefully I'm helpful to them too.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I, I hear nothing but positive things. Um, but to to get to that number of portfolio companies you you must have had to look at you know literally thousands of of companies and opportunities like how do you decide like what you know uh, uh yeah how do you how do you how do you know like how do you make that bet and, and you know when you're at the stage at which you're investing, maybe you could talk a little bit about the stage that you're investing into, which makes it in my mind doubly hard you know we're we're series A investors. You know, we've got you know, um, you know, ACV to CAC ratios to look at. We got all kinds of pretty, you know, ARR numbers to look at, right? Like you might not have that, and you know, at at the seed stages. So how do you how do you make that determination? So there's a lot of factors, and I always laugh when I hear there aren't a lot of people talk about this anymore. But years ago,
1: I'd hear a lot of funds talk about, "Oh, we're building this AI model. We're building this this giant yeah. thing. We're going to basically computerize how to decide on what to invest in." It's like that's not actually mm-hmm. possible. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's just so many different things that go into a, a pre-seed or seed stage investment. And This thesis that I have, which I can talk about later, is also so different that it does actually make it easier and also harder in some ways. So, I guess how to pick the companies or how to pick the founders. When I was alluding to that skill set, when I was in the intelligence community of I- wondering like, what was I doing there? Am I wasting my time? Is this skill set useful anywhere? Anywhere you could ever think of? Is can I talk about this anywhere? Basically, what, is this, what am I wasting my time in here for? that skill set actually is extremely useful in seed investing and pre-seed investing because I mean, really one of the survival mechanisms I had internally was I had to read people really quickly mm-hmm. and it had to be mm-hmm. accurate. And this is internal politics happening because I was working at a pretty senior level at certain the roles I was in and was also reading the actual people that I was working with because these are people going out in the field and doing, you know, all the operational stuff and just trying to figure out can they actually do what they need to do? Are they equipped the right way? Do they have the right stories? I mean, to do the job that they need to do so that they actually come back here and want to accomplish what they have to accomplish and to come back here alive. And a lot of it was just reading people, reading body language, reading what they're telling me and all those little random tactics that I was taught internally. A lot of it informal. I was also like this random novelty. act. I was 23 years old when I was at the agency and I, I don't think people knew what to make of me in some of the meetings I was in. I probably shouldn't have been in a lot of meetings I was in the really high level. I was the youngest person there by far. And a lot of the old timers there that were you know, 40 years in and sort of just walking around trying to figure out like how to pass the time because they're about to retire would teach me little things like how to read the body language of people, how to read what people were thinking. And all of that trickled down after years. So if I'm going to pitch with, with a founder in person or on Zoom, it has to be at least on video or it has to be in person because I have to see their face. Sure. I will read their body language and I'll ask a lot of really open-ended questions. I let them do a ton of talking initially. I take a lot of notes too, which I'm, I am you know, taking notes. I'm just like watching them on the camera. But I do watch how they react to certain things and based on how they react to certain things or how they answer certain questions and then based on how uh, the market they're in is, is composed and how they're scaling and how they're selling. All the different little factors that go into it, I try to figure out, can they actually scale this company up? Are they the right person to do it? Are they going to be capital efficient? Can they get the right acquirer? And do the terms actually
0: make any sense? And There's all sorts of different micro factors inside those too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. But you know, so one of the things that I mean, so you know, a little bit about my background. You know, I I you know built and sold a company, a couple companies right here in Baltimore. Um, you know, the first was was an exit to a Fortune 300, khaki, and the second one was an exit to a, another Fortune 300, um, Assurant. um net positive transactions, and all that. Um, it was really difficult in the last one, though. I sold in 2020, fixed. And um, you know it was difficult in the last uh, you know sort of year or so of it raising capital, and you know as I think about it, I raised I went out raised about six and a half million dollars in total, Um, and you know a lot of just you know conversations that resulted in you know a a bagel where you know I just got a zero or a no, and you know if if people were reading my body language, they might have picked up on all kinds of things, right? Like the fact that I was embarrassed by the fact that I had a, a bankruptcy you know, between my exits, um, you know, company I bought, you know, uh, to try to turn it around. And like, I couldn't do that and had to put it in bankruptcy. Right. But you might pick that up in my in my body language, you know, back then. Now it's something I talk about pretty, you know, openly and like, I'm not embarrassed by it. Like it's just, you know, sort of par for the course. Um, But, you know, I wonder how you distinguish between folks who might come from tough backgrounds that, you know, might be just embarrassed about some aspect of, their own background or something they did or worked on that, you know, is, is like non-conventional versus someone who is just lacks confidence or in the worst case scenario might be just dishonest about, about, about you know, what they can do with a company. How do you, how do you make that determination? How do you decide between those, those, those factors? Does that make sense to you? A question? Yeah. I mean, this is a really non-conventional thesis. So I'm looking for non-conventional
1: type founders. Yeah. And I actually like to see founders that have had to work for where they've been yeah, I, this is probably not a, a politically correct thing to say when I when I see an HBS MBA or a Stanford MBA or I see Google <laughs> or Amazon, like I actually like a lot of VC say that. Go, oh yeah, that's exactly what I need. Like that's actually what I need to see. And every deal I do, I see that and I go, oh god, like yeah. I actually don't like seeing that. That's actually not a positive. That's a net negative for me when I see that. Totally. I want to see someone that went to uh, a state school. I mean, it doesn't have to be a bad mm-hmm. school, but I want someone that went to you know, they earned it, they paid their way. Yeah, you want yeah, they paid their way through college. Maybe their parents helped a little bit, but like I want to see someone that actually to work for what they had to do. I mean, the best thing my parents did when I turned sixteen was they said, "All right, you know, you can't get a car. You got to go pay for your own car. Go, go get a job." And as soon as I turned sixteen, I went and worked at Target. I was stocking shelves. I was pushing carts in, in the in the cold and in the heat. I was working the guest service counter. I was you know I was doing the back room stuff, and it really just kind of toughened you up a little bit because you have to go like earn the money to go do what you have to do. I like to see that in a founder. Is yeah, It makes them a lot more capital efficient, too, because they appreciate a dollar, they appreciate a cent, because they know what it actually takes to earn that.
0: That's right. So, so you know, given the fact that, you know, a, a lot of uh, diverse founders have that in droves, right, I, I assume that I, if I look at your portfolio, I see all diverse founders, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, I, I'm looking for a lot of different characteristics. I mean, tenacity is one, aggressiveness is one. I want to see a really pugnacious founder that really wants it badly. I mean, there's a lot of real hunger. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're really, really, really hungry to get this company going. It really is part of their identity. It means a lot to them. They will not let this thing fail, and they're very careful in how they spend money. And they're not going to go blow it on twenty different things. They're going to be careful in how they spend it. And -hmm. if they get the right acquisition offer and it's thirty or forty or fifty million, they're not going to be like, "Oh, it's too small. I'm going for the moon." It's this is realistic. This might be the right time. Sounds great. Let's sell. That's what
0: I'm looking for. Sure. What are so? I just want to switch maybe to some other uh, comments and questions around around our our beloved city Baltimore um you know lots of you know there's lots of conversations happening i mean I've been here for twenty two years now and i you know I hear people talk about you know how this place is improving, not improving you know depending on what you know set of data you know data set you look at you know you can come to different conclusions right but the but the reality is you know the the amount of venture capital investing you know has basically quadrupled over the last 10 years. Um, you know, how much of that do you think is like really a market function versus like people being attracted to Baltimore and pouring more capital into into Baltimore specifically because of, you know, this city's infrastructure? <laughs> I, I hope it's the latter. I think it's probably more the former. <laughs>
1: uh, you, you look at the venture capital flows just in general, the last really even five years, but 10 years, there's just a ton more money going into the space. A lot of it's been the bull market, especially in the last couple of years. I think a lot of it's just people they want to get money out of the market and things that are not as correlated, and they want they want to go for higher yields, so they want to go for fifteen, twenty, thirty percent IRR versus maybe like ten in the public markets. I think that's more. I mean, I'm hopeful Baltimore is still building, and I, I I'm still really grateful for everything that Baltimore has given me for Fund One and a little bit in Fund Two. I mean, it, Baltimore is really pivotal with the success of Fund One. It really got it off the ground. All of my initial investors were Baltimore, and I, I won't
0: forget that. That's great. Yeah, it's great. I think I think we got a lot of potential here. There's no question about it. Um, but the, what is the, you know, the the are you you're you're investing beyond Baltimore? I assume you're you're not just investing in Baltimore. You're investing nationally. Is that right? Yeah, it's a
1: nationwide thesis. I mean, Silicon Valley. I'm really skeptical on. If I'm seeing a deal out there, it's probably not a good one. And most of right. the, the deals out there, it's I'm going to IPO or, or bust, and that just doesn't fit what I'm looking for. So I do a lot of deals in the Southeast, like Atlanta area. I do a lot in the Midwest, Ohio, Wisconsin, Minnesota, some of the Northeast. A lot of them are in the Mid-Atlantic. My five biggest deals in fund one were Mid-Atlantic, Philly to Richmond. So there's definitely a really big, I wouldn't say preference. It's just a lot of just access. I see a lot of different deals as you do in this area. And I like local companies, so I tend to do more of them, but it's nationwide.
0: Yeah, I mean, but why in Baltimore though, and I and I'm I'm an entrepreneur that, you know, certain certainly faced this, like why why isn't there more investment in in black founders, Latinx founders, diverse founders in Baltimore? The year I raised my series A, it was the largest series A by any black founder, six and a half million dollars in twenty eighteen. Um between eighteen and nineteen, there was about hundred and fifty million dollars of capital that came into Baltimore, and about six point seven million of that capital went to um black founders. And of that six point seven, I raised my six point five million dollars Series A, so about about two hundred k, you know, went around to to black founders. You know, those proportions are not you know wholly different than they are today. You still see, you know, huge numbers coming into Baltimore. I think the number is probably closer to four or five hundred million And total venture capital allocations in twenty twenty two came into Baltimore, and not even not even five percent of that went to diverse founders. So I'm just curious, like, what's the what's the challenge there? I mean, do you think it's a mix of, like, you know, sort of, um, you know, technical skill sets and training uh, or, you know, bias, you know, investor bias? I mean, I and mean, we all have them. I have my own biases. Um, but just, just curious your perspective on that. It's Hard to say. I, that's one thing I
1: can't quite figure out because I invest in everyone. It's I'm looking for different characteristics and skill sets. A lot of people aren't looking for it. I think a lot of it does come down to, when you're looking for the bigger investment rounds and the ones that are raising big money at big valuations, usually they are the Stanford MBAs or the Harvard MBAs or the the people that sort of had an easy access to early money at really high valuations, which typically comes in different circles than most people that, that would fit that criteria. I, I think it, and I noticed this even raising Fund One and Fund Two. If you have access to certain groups or people, or you're born in a certain areas, it's just a lot easier to raise money versus when you're outside of it. And you have to work your way in. I think that's a big part of it. I think access to money is a really big thing um outside of that i don't know I, I don't i can't explain it i i i'm looking for certain characteristics and deals and certain types of founders i could care less really anything I, I care about their background i care about what school do they go to how are they raised the tougher the background to some extent the better for me some sort of opposite <laughs> yeah. The <most> fun
0: <laughs> yeah it's like a it's like a negative correlation right i love it um or positive correlation for for your model um, so how do, you, how do you advise like the companies that you invest in? Like what are the, you know, two or three pieces of advice that you're sort of passing along to them in this like difficult market, right? Like you've got, you know, so sort of the Baltimore ecosystem, which is tough by itself, but then you've got the larger macro, you know, challenges associated with, you know, the pullback and venture, you know, that's that's been occurring. It seems to be tapering off to some extent, but, you know, how are you advising companies, you know, about, you know, how to react to the current market environment? So it should, no,
1: this current market environment shouldn't be a surprise to any of my portfolio companies, angel or fund, because I've been hitting them over the head with this for the last two or three years. I've been super bearish for a long time. I mean, when this stuff happened in early 2020 and 2021, you could sort of see the writing on the wall. The Fed was pumping an insane amount of money into the economy. The interest rates were artificially low. You know, People were YOLOing on just the craziest, still are on the craziest things you could ever think of. It was basically 1999 all over again. And I kept telling portfolio companies... The going is great right now. Go as fast as you possibly can. Money's cheap. It's easy. It's everywhere. You know, people are buying everywhere in the corporations you're selling into or the nonprofits or the, the educational institutions you're selling into. Like go as fast as you can. Grow as big as you can. Burn, you know, carefully, but go as fast as you possibly can to get as big as possible, as fast as you can. And I told them by the end of 2021 and early 2022, things are going to start shifting. You better get solidified, get your burn right down, raise as much as you can raise, and then stockpile that. Sit on it. And a lot of them did do that. They went really fast into really summer, fall of 21. They raised around by early 22. And now they're sitting on a bunch of cash and their burn rate is also not all that high. So those companies are sitting pretty. The ones that didn't, of which thankfully there aren't more than like one or two, uh, they're getting a little nervous and they're having to sort of white knuckle a raise because money is starting to dry up and it's
2: going to only get probably get a lot worse by the end of 23 and 24.
0: Helpful. Um, what was the best deal that you've done in your investing career was the worst one? Maybe a, a, yeah, you can get <laughs> yeah, as, much as, as much detail as you can provide. <laughs> uh, let's
1: see. I'll start off with the worst. I don't want to say the name. It's a local company. They had just gotten started. It was in the MarTech space, of which I stay completely away from now. This is years ago when I did the deal. It was a really small angel deal. And this, this deal and maybe one other one is the reason why I do basically no MarTech and no AdTech, and I never will. I ended up investing in this company. They actually had clients. They had some revenue, and they were big name clients. They are Fortune 500 clients, and they're going out to raise their, I would call it more of a seed than a pre-seed. And they went from having revenue and having clients and having a solution and having a live product to losing one of their bigger clients, losing another client, having something shift in one of their markets, and then losing most of the rest of their revenue. And then the founders, after like three months, this is literally three months after investment, said, "Up, ah, you know, too hard. We're gonna, we're gonna, you know, kind of mothball this thing. It's gonna be a zombie company. We're gonna go full time jobs." It's like. There's just no fight there. And I I later, I I actually looked back into that because I want to look back into the the failures that I've had. And similar background, one had access to money and one just wasn't bought in. And it was one of those deals I didn't do enough diligence on. It was also a New York City-minded company that were based up there. And definitely learned those lessons and would never do another deal like that, hopefully, again. Mm. There's a few others like that, but that's one that sort of encapsulates most of the bad. Yeah. good. It's hard to pick one. I mean, there's been a couple really good ones. There's one recent exit one in 18 that I'm, I'm pretty proud of. And I've got one existing company, which is still out building, I, I guess, like best in terms of returns or best in terms of experience or best in terms of just, avoid-
0: yeah, just o- overall, like, you know, maybe, maybe returns focused, or maybe just, you know, it was a founder that hadn't figured it all out. You took a bet because like it, you know, fit within your model in terms of who that founder was. And, and they figured it out. You know, they they, they got there, you know, overcoming incredible loss. I don't know. Um, you pick.
1: I guess the easiest one to pick, and this is the most recent, actually. So Joe at Major Clarity, I can talk a little about this. I'm not sure if his acquisition is completely public, but at this point, it probably should be. It's you know, almost the end of January. So Joe, he founded a company called Major Clarity. They're based in Richmond. And it's an ed tech platform for basically career and technical education for planning, career planning, essentially in high school and a little bit middle school plan out your courses of study to go figure out where you want to go or where you want to be. And it optimizes everything and from transcripts all the way to, to what the courses you're taking to what colleges you go to, to what certifications you're going after, micro-credentialing, all sorts of different stuff around this journey of being in high school and planning your career. And I met Joe back in, I think it was April or May of 2017. And he was at about 12K in revenue. He had one client. He had just launched his product to some extent. And I was introduced to him to a, from a friend, ended up meeting up with him for coffee in Chinatown in DC, thinking like, you know, I'll have a good conversation, but like, this is so early, it's a tough industry. He's like 25 at the time, <laughs> like, you know, it'll be, a, it'll be a very pleasant conversation. I'll learn something and, you know, who, who knows? And after an hour and a half of sitting there, I remember walking away thinking like, yep, he's going to build something. I'm going to invest. Just got to figure out how much and uh, when I'm actually going to write on the check. And ended up writing an angel check into, into into the company. This is summer of 2017. He still had, didn't have a ton of revenue when I wrote the check. And a lot of stuff has transpired since then. But Joe was also, you know, he had a tougher background. I wouldn't say he had a tough background, but he had a pretty tough background. And he didn't grow up in a lot of the same circles that some of the, you know, the people that raised these huge rounds went uh, into. He did go William & Mary, but he had to fight to get in there and fight to get through it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, built this company at the age of, I think it was 25. There. I think I had to double check. I think he was 25 and anyway you fast forward five years later he had raised something like three million dollars and a little bit of a line on a line of credit he just sold the company had a great exit he still owned something like 49 or 50 percent of the company and it was one of those things didn't raise a lot of money he was actually cash flow positive by the time he sold which is really recent and he had full control and optionality he had grown the company really quickly he had really stable revenue he had raving clients his usage rates were absolutely nuts he was actually changing people's lives they were you know, trying to figure out what they want to be for a living. Maybe it was plumbing, mm. maybe it was something like an electrician or something just different. And I think a lot of people are waking up and realizing those are actually really good career pathways. And maybe I should go after this versus going after something that doesn't make as much sense or taking on debt. And just seeing the impact he's had on kids, on institutions, on teachers, on administrators, and then on, a, on himself and on people in the company. It was a mm-hmm. great exit for people in the company. It was quick, it was clean, it was mostly cash uh for investors and it was, you know, in, in real equity in the company that bought him, like an actual company that was valued appropriately. So it was really good to see that sort of from basically nothing to about five five and a half
2: years later having a really a really good exit in, in Richmond and and locally.
0: Wow, that's huge! Yeah, that's huge. That's really huge. Um, so, if in the when you first meet a founder, like and let's assume that you had three minutes to determine, you know. I'm probably going to invest or I'm not likely to invest, right? Like we, we, all, all all investors kind of have this mental model. Like I, I certainly have it. Like, and there's some like bright line things. Like if you don't have, you know, at least a million ARR, if you don't have a story for how you got to that ARR, you don't have, uh, you know, a, a solid team in place. You know, you have, you know, um, you're not, you know, you have a non-diverse team, bad company culture. I mean, there's, you know, five or six, like really bright line things that in the first, like, five minutes will just like, you know, uh, cause me to just, you know, lose interest in, a, in an opportunity. What are the like five or six things that a founder, you know, could, could say, do, or be when they met you, that would give you high confidence and that, that this is a, a very likely, you know, investment that I, I would, I would, I would, you know, pursue. Are there are four or five like, key, key things that you look at when you talk to someone.
1: So, I guess I can start off. I can even go founder by founder in some cases, like Joe at Major Clarity. I mean, he was a ball of energy. I mean, he was just super enthusiastic about this. He really cared about the problem. He was very passionate. I mean, actually, to the point where we had coffee at this little China, uh, this place in Chinatown, this, you know, I don't know, 30 seat place. It wasn't very big. And the person sitting next to us after this hour conversation I actually worked at Montgomery County Schools <laughs> and heard the conversation. And after I left to go back to AARP, because it was right by AARP's office. Uh, he actually came up to Joe and started a conversation and talking about using it in Montgomery County. It was just funny to hear that's that. That's he awesome. That
0: passionate. That's awesome. So
1: I like, to, I like to see that. I want to see someone that actually lives and breathes and cares about this because that doesn't matter. Working at a company, especially early stage and building a company, as you know, is really, really hard. And you have to really care about it. It can't be transactional. And I want to see someone that's really deeply ingrained and really cares about it. And he did. And there are other founders like Joe that did, but Joe really showed me in that case. and I knew pretty quickly he had that. I think expertise is a big thing, knowing what you're selling into or what you're doing, like market round. When I met him also ironically in Chinatown at the WeWork uh, in DC, uh, I remember sitting down with him and after like literally two or three minutes, I was looking at him. He was very confident in his answers. He knew exactly what he was talking about. He came from the industry. He knew exactly how to solve the problem and he was building something that made total sense. And the stories he told me were really impactful and they were direct. I mean, they were caseworkers in, in health systems. This is still really early round trip at a couple hundred dollars in revenue at the time. And I remember him telling me, there are literally caseworkers in hospitals that are on the phone with him telling them how much they love this crying, how much how, how impactful this is for patients and people in there. I was like, all right, this is having an impact and clearly he knows what he's talking about. That was one other thing. I think scrappiness is a really big thing, like Shiv at osmosis. I, I could see that within a minute of meeting him.
2: Like mm-hmm. he was
1: incredibly scrappy. He didn't raise really any money to get to one and a half in revenue and you could just see he was, you know, very disciplined in how he was spending. He wasn't just wasting it left and right, he was careful about it. That's a big thing. I mean, those are the three really big things I look for, but there's a lot of other ones mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just see it. I mean, I, I'll yeah. ask certain questions and I'll sort of see where they take the conversation too. Because when you leave white space in a conversation, like people try to fill that up. it's because silence is kind of uncomfortable
0: and I want to see what they do with that.
2: Mm. Mm.
0: So, so you're really observing, you know, you're, you're, you're taking advantage of, of, of your your, <laughs> your intelligence background. Um and, and putting that to work in those in those first interactions with the founder and looking at, you know, you know, sort of how they how they treat the company, how they you know, how capital efficient they are, how scrappy they are, how tough they are, how committed they are to the idea are some of the factors that you would lean into as, you know, things that like give you confidence.
1: Yeah, and the sales process to Ask them a lot of questions around sales and marketing. How are you getting sales? What's the sales process like? What do, what do clients need to see? How are they finding you? How's the contracting going? How is a negotiation going? How do the terms and the contracts work? I mean all sorts of different things of
2: basically can you scale this thing up pretty quickly and efficiently? and that's another key thing that I always look for, and, and if I see that, that definitely gets me intrigued.
0: Got it so who is um, do, you, do you mentor your startups and if you do uh, that's great. Um, but you know what, uh, how frequently do you meet with them on, on like mentorship opportunities is this sort of like you know case by case, and then who do you go to for mentorship? How do you get you know the support you need? Yeah, that's a good question. I think startups, it's all case by case. I
1: mean, they all have my number. They Some of them call me more frequently than others. I'll hear from some every week, <laughs> some every month. Uh, if they have a question about something, I always try to answer to try to help them. I can't always answer everything or help on everything. It's just, you know, my network is as big, but it's not, you know, can't solve every single problem or answer every question. But I try to do as much as I can. Um, so I do try to be sort of a sounding board. And the other thing, too, is I'll, I want founders to give me bad news and good news. especially if it's bad news. Like I want to hear that because being an early stage investor, you have to, you're going to hear everything. There was one that just called me. I'm not going to name it, but called me last week and I wouldn't say it was like really bad news, but it wasn't good news. (laughs) And he basically at the end of this conversation is like, I'm really glad I can call you with this type of stuff. You're the only one I can call. And it's like, well, (laughs) it's one that's kind of sad, but two, it's good to to do that because in this case, I was able to help him and give him some advice and he was able to make some adjustments. And I think the company now is on good footing, but, you know, there there are some VCs that are like, they hear bad news, they just start shutting down They say, oh, I don't have time for this, you know, I'll let my associate deal with it or like, I don't want to deal with, shut the company down versus like, in, in this case, with this thesis, I can't have a high failure rate. So I need these founders to fight for it and really get creative and I try to help them get creative. Uh, in terms of kind of who I go to for mentoring, I mean, Jim Hunt is by far the person I go to for almost everything. He's the person that, I mean, without him, I don't think I'd even be a VC. And he opened my eyes to how you actually do this. He opened my eyes to how things work. And without him, I'd be I wouldn't be in VC. I don't know what I'd be doing right now, probably something else. <laughs> and I still go to him. I mean, because he's a wealth of information. He's I ask I get asked him a question, he hasn't answered pretty much everything. Because he's seen and done basically all of it before. He's been doing this for forty years. Um and there are people like him, not quite with his experience level that I go to. There's you know, three hundred or so funds I work with, some that are actually investors in fund one and fund two personally, and I go to them. <laughs> pretty frequently because they're obviously aligned uh, with me and a lot of them manage their own funds and have been managing their own funds for a while so I try to go for like the venture 501 or 601 level type questions or things that I'm struggling with or trying to figure like now in the current market like how do you play the market where there's a huge sort of gap between what founders expect and what the actual market's bearing things like that
0: yeah no that, that absolutely um all all great points and Jim Jim Hunt's a is, is a great investor uh you know we we actually took in money um you know I don't know if you know um uh what's his face from Blue Ventures um uh drawing a blank Paul yeah we we took in money from blue um, through Paul uh back in when we were doing our seed round and they didn't invest in the A but they invested in our seed rounds you know they're mostly cybersecurity um but you know they took a flyer with us um, and, and, and there's just, they're just really smart, uh, really smart investors. Um, so yeah, kudos to you for, um, having that relationship. I think, um, you know, we need more of that in Baltimore. I mean, when I went to go launch Latimer Ventures, I looked around There really, there is not a, a, you know, a minority focused VC fund here in the city. There's an accelerator, you know, there's a super angel fund. Mac, you know, has, uh, yep. has, um, uh, rare breed and some others. But there's not really an investment firm here, you know, that, that um, you know, where, where someone like me could go and, you know, sort of just, you know, sit and talk. And so I, I spent time with folks at JMI and some other, you know, some other shops around town that kind of gave me some of that background. So, um, you know, fully, um, you know, value those kinds of mentorship relationships. Um, well, maybe one last question. I'd love to, you know, sort of entertain and my, my, my audience would be eager to, you know, sort of, um, you know, probe is like, what, what, what misunderstandings about the VC space do you think are most common, right? What are some of the most common ones? And, you know, what would you say, you know, to, uh, you know, a founder, you know, a former founder or somebody who's like, you know, just, just, you know, getting to a, you know, uh, you know, at an inflection point in their career where they're looking to turn to to VC. Like what advice would you give them uh, as they entered the space?
1: Uh so I could go in a couple of directions here. I think there's sort of like advice on like thesis. I guess I could go into that. And there's also sort of like the day-to-day I guess I can go thesis quickly. So I guess there's there's all different kinds of VCs that do all sorts of different investing at all different kinds of stages, different markets, different approaches, different portfolio construction, everything you'd ever think of. And I think people see Shark Tank or the other shows or they look at the big funds in the Bay Area and they go, all right, people are just going IPO hunting and that's really what they have to do. They have to have 100, 200 or more type returns, extra returns to make their funds work because the failure rates are so really ridiculously high (laughs) and they're so valuation uh, insensitive. They sort of have to go, you know, grand slam swing and they'll strike out a ton, but they're going for those grand slams and they're going for the really big ones. But there are some VCs out there. Like the way the thesis in early light is it's I'd say it's a lot of singles and doubles. I'm going for a lot of like two to six X type returns that are quicker and cleaner and usually mm-hmm. sub fifty, sub-sixty million dollar exits, which are just a lot easier and a lot more common. Mm-hmm. And my failure rate's also much lower. So I'm gonna help the founder fight through any adversity because I really can't have a lot of failures and it's a different kind of thesis and it can actually work really well for a founder and I think getting the word out there that like there are VCs doing this is helpful because it works out really well for founders in most of these cases so they don't raise a lot of money most of the early employees get options those options are still actually worth something because they haven't raised a lot of money that sort of takes the wind out of the sails there and have such a quick it's 3 to 5 years in a lot of cases and it's definitely doable It is As an angel my failure rates about 11 or 12% this is going real early in some cases, pre almost pre revenue in a lot of cases. So it can be done. I think the other thing is that, especially especially I'm talking to, to people that want to get into VC that are either younger or older. It could be in a in a uh, you know MBA program or out of an MBA program or a founder, or whatever it is. Running a fund is not glamorous. <laughs> like, no, especially a smaller one. You know this. Uh, you know you're basically. I know everyone uses this a restaurant analogy for you know every kind of analogy you can think of, but you really are running a restaurant. You're ordering the food, yeah. you're cleaning the back room, you're cooking the food, you're serving the guests, you're That's cleaning right. up the restaurant afterward. You're the host. I mean, you're doing literally everything you could ever think of. Some of it is not, most of it's not glamorous. I mean, you're doing a lot of admin stuff. You're raising money, which is just for a fund is an incredible slog, especially when the market's you know normal or tough. I mean, it's just like in early light, I've had to deliver, do all the collateral, do all the different models behind the behind the scenes, work with some of the providers the admin providers, uh, you know, obviously doing the investing is one part of it, but then there's LP engagement and fundraising. Like a lot of the stuff I'm doing day-to-day is not necessarily investing. So it's not the most glamorous work. Uh, the one payoff is the investing is a lot of fun, but the day-to-day job is not necessarily glamorous and it's not easy. And, you know, there's not a lot of spare time to like, you know, go hit the golf course. I mean, you're working long hours every day.
0: No no doubt about that. No, No doubt about that. And it's just you, right? You're, you're, you're a solo GP. Yeah, fun two solo. It, it's
1: yeah, it's good. And it's bad. I, it's good that I can move really quickly on deals, and I know kind of what I'm looking for. There's no analyst screening the companies. I'm the one screening the companies. I'm the one taking the notes. I'm the one doing the write ups, the score sheets, the you know monthly newsletters. A lot of cases for LPS. If an LP has a question, I'm the one answering it. I mean, it's
0: it's good and it's bad. It's like a lot of things. Hmm. Hmm. And I mean, in the size of your fund two, did you say 15 or 20 million? So
1: Fund 1 is about 16.6, and that was raised. It took two over two years, really, to raise it. And a lot of that came in at the end of 2020. And I had a lot of good investors. A lot of them were Baltimore investors. Fund 2 is about 11 right now, signed and committed. I technically just finished my first close, and I can keep raising. I have a year to keep raising. I'm debating if I want to keep doing that. It's, it's a weird dynamic where Fund one's performing really, really well didn't take a lot of chances, didn't pay up in valuation, didn't chase stupid stuff. There's no crypto. There's no, there's no flavor of the month stuff in there. It's real businesses or real valuations with real founders. Then it'll do well if the market crashes tomorrow. But I think a lot of people want to see all of their money back and I'm talking cash on cash with returns before they want to do another fund. Which is also what makes it hard to be VC is that this, even these exits that I'm investing in, they take years. Yeah. In the way I get the money in, and there's four capital calls so I'm not getting the money quickly. It takes mm-hmm. me from day one, at least three years to get all the money in, and it's twenty five percent a year. So I'm not investing at all on day one. So it takes years to invest it, and then it takes a couple years for an exit. And then I want to recycle a little bit so I can pay some of the fees and costs of running a fund. So by the time I actually give cash back, it does take a little while. It's not ten years, but it does take a little while. And you're not going to wait, you know, six years or seven years to go raise another fund. So it's kind of a weird in between situation where fund one's performing really well. <laughs> I have a lot of Uh, fund managers personally putting their own money in to fund too because they're seeing what's happening and they do this
2: on a day-to-day basis but i have a lot of investors kind of sitting on the sidelines waiting for cash on cash i don't blame them but it does make running a fund a little harder
1: yeah
0: why would anybody do this business
1: (laughs) (laughs) well the investing side is fun i I love the challenge i love the actual day-to-day like real investing work i love doing that it gets me really excited and really passionate about it i mean i do it two in the morning i'm reading about best practices or trying to figure out Ways to optimize the existing portfolio or the new portfolio. All the I love this stuff, but the fundraising side of it's one thing I've never liked. It's it's especially with individuals because you're having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of conversations, and some are quick and some are not quick, and you're not dealing with an institution where you get a twenty million dollars check and you get five or ten of them and you're done. And I'm talking, I have ninety three investors in Fund One and I have fifty no I have sixty in Fund Two right now, some of which are overlapping between the two of them. But it's a lot of conversations, a lot of back and forth, and. Yeah, you know, until you have real cash on cash, I'm not necessarily sure a lot of what you're saying matters.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, well, this has been a a great conversation, Scott. I, I really, I mean, I'm in Baltimore uh, as well. I really hope that we have an opportunity to work together. I hope we find a, a great company that we can collaborate on and, and maybe you know co invest. Uh, I think we we came close on on one. I think I think Side Deploy might have been one that you looked at possibly. Yeah, it was about,
1: I think it was actually a year or two ago. It was, it was early. That's that's the only yeah, thing. She, is pre, she was very early. She was very early. Pre, pre-rev is hard. I mean, pre-product yeah. pre-rev is hard, I'm, especially with the market. I, I got a little bit cautious because I think there's going to be some serious headwinds for any really early companies because it's, it's going to get hard to get early clients. People aren't going to be taking chances. On. People they are not going to be doing pilots. It's you know sort of like you invest in the brand name, so to speak. When things get tough, that's what I'm a little bit uh, leery of. And
2: that's sort of why I'm sitting on cash. I've only done two new deals in the last 13 months. Hmm. interesting Interesting.
0: well i appreciate your time today scott i I, i'm so glad that you came on to the show to to share your wisdom your experiences in your in your background um you know i'm sure my audience uh, really appreciated it and and valued this conversation thank you yeah thanks for having me it's fun yeah any any parting wisdom that you'd like to add before i i uh, sign off uh (laughs) i could talk about anything (laughs) (laughs) You know, maybe, maybe, um, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know, one, one or two things that you think, you know, founders should be thinking about, um, you know, heading into this fundraising season.
1: I think the biggest thing, and some of this maybe is backward looking for some founders, is know who you're taking money from. I know some did some diligence mm-hmm. on, on their investors, especially in the last two years. I didn't notice this much in 18 or 19, which is kind of interesting. I think no, you're taking money from and ask them, well, like, what is your thesis? What do you expect out of me? What, what exit do you, do you need from me to make this work? Because I've seen some founders take money from West Coast oriented funds and they basically said, I need you to triple or quadruple your business this year. and If you fail, I don't really care. And I have one of those companies in my portfolio and I talked to the founder who I'm close with and kind of looked at each other like, that doesn't make any sense in this market. You got to go slower, and get cash flow positive and have optionality. And the other thing too, is there's a preference stack. If you raise, say, $10 million dollars, you have to pay your investors back in a lot of cases 10 million dollars plus sometimes dividends or interest or other things and that's before anyone with common stock gets paid including founders or employees people working for your company so i think being careful about how much you raise and under what terms is really critical and the other thing too that i i would say i find funny because i get it a lot of founders care about the top number so their pre-money valuation their their cap on a, on a note or a safe yeah I, I think it, and i get it because they don't want to take too much dilution but I think founders have to be a little more careful about that because I think you have to get the right investors and raise the right amount of money. If you raise too much money, it can really bite you quickly, especially as the market turns. And I've seen a lot of companies recently that have raised let's call it six to twelve million dollars cumulatively over the last, you know, five years. And they're at maybe a million in revenue, million and a million half in revenue, and they've doubled or something like that in the last year. And they're doing bridge rounds now at, you know, fifteen or twenty or whatever million dollar caps. And I've looked at dozens of these in the last week or two. And you just look at the business and go, you know what, you raised too much money and you spent way too much money. And if things get really bad, which they probably will, you're one, not to be able to raise much money really at all. And two, if you try to fire sell your company, especially in a bad market and you're at a million or two million in revenue, you're not going to get much for it. You might get two million for it, three million. So if you raise 10, <laughs> your investors aren't even getting paid back. They're not going to be happy about that. So there's I think capital efficiency is one thing that really, really needs to be shared widely with founders because it really is critical for one, their own take in the company and their founder and uh, their employees take, which is a key thing, but it also gives them optionality. If you haven't raised a lot of money and you have actual revenue down the line and you're not burning a lot of money, you can pull the, you can go slower if you want to. Like I've got some portfolio companies that are going, I told them you grow 25, 30% year over year the next year or two, if things get really bad, great do not care. I right. actually be pretty mm-hmm. happy because you'll be cash flow positive or neutral. Like mm-hmm. you control mm-hmm. your own destiny. You're still in a better market. Like great. But there are a lot of founders who are like, I got to grow two, three, four X year over year, and I'm going to burn as much as I can within reason. And in six months or twelve months, if things get really bad. They're not going to raise more money, and they're not going to cut their burn rate fast enough. And they're going to be in this weird place where they have to fire sell the business, and there aren't going to be any buyers. So yeah, I wish founders are more aware of that.
0: Yeah, that's 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 advice. Absolutely it's complicated right it's hard it's it's you know building a thing that didn't exist before is hard and then making sure you marry the right math and you know and strategy to that that thing is also equally hard but you know thank goodness they got great VCs like you um to, to guide them and help them and you and i can can you know now both do that work um thanks a lot for for this time scott yeah absolutely happy to happy to help anywhere i can thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Say It In The Room podcast. I'm your host, Luke Cooper. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support, please share it with others. To catch up with me, please follow me on Twitter at Ready, Set, Grind, or catch me on LinkedIn under Luke Cooper Baltimore. That's all for this week. See you next time.